Welcome to Gray Matter. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Gray Matter. Conversations with Michael Krasny. Our conversation today is with John McWhorter, who joins us for this episode of Gray Matter. One of the preeminent linguists of our era, John McWhorter is presently professor of linguistics at Columbia University, and he's also a columnist for the New York Times. I should mention that he's also served as contributing editor of The New Republic and The Atlantic magazines, and he's the author of over 20 books, uh, notably The Power of Babel, Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever, Losing the Race, Self-Sabotage in Black America, and most recently, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. And I want to welcome John to Gray Matter and say that... uh, I brag about the fact that I knew him when he was uh, just a young professor and scholar, <laughs> and uh, now he is a major pundit. Good to have, good to be back with you. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's good to talk again. Yeah, good to talk with you again, and much to talk about. Uh, I thought maybe we'd begin by just talking about um, sort of your metamorphosis. I mean, uh, like I said, and I was talking a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I knew you when you were just a linguistics professor and scholar, and uh, now you've risen in the ranks. I mean, you're, you've got your own podcast. You're a major figure in terms of uh, especially subjects like race. This evolved, and it evolved uh, how? It really is a matter of chance, and I think that I don't hear this as much as I used to, but I think back in the day, there were people who thought that I was kind of an opportunist who didn't want to be just a linguist and was you know, trying to come up with a way to be, quote unquote, famous. But it wasn't anything like that. It's that when I was at Berkeley being just a linguist and pretty satisfied doing it, certain things happened in the Bay Area that got my dander up about race. And because there was this new thing called the Internet, it was easy to get the word out, even if you weren't trying all that hard. And so there was the Oakland Ebonics controversy, where I was in the media for about, you know, 10 minutes and thought that was going to be it. Then there was the big debate over racial preferences. And I happened to be teaching at Berkeley, and I had some strong opinions. And I wrote a book, because I happened to be a quick writer. And I thought that the book, Losing the Race, would be read by a few people in the Bay Area and just be a kind of calling card where I laid out what my views were so that people wouldn't be confused or disappointed, because I noticed that most Black professors didn't seem to think like me about race, at least. You know, I've always been a Democrat, I'm a liberal, but race views were different. Losing the Race was a minor hit nationwide. And next thing you know, you start being asked to write for people. And I never thought that was going to happen. For a long time, I thought that after a while, my star, such as it was, would dim. But people never stopped asking me to write. And you kind of keep going. And first, it was the New Republic. And then after a while, I thought that maybe... I was, you know, losing my mojo, but I actually, the one thing I ever did, the one thing that I ever actually pursued is that I decided I would like to write for the Atlantic. And I actually tugged on somebody's sleeve. That's the one time I stepped away from just letting things happen to me. So that happened. And then I think with the New York Times, I'm very happy to be writing for them. But I think part of that was a gesture on the part of the Times, because I think they were worried that they were beginning to be perceived as a little bit too, what used to be called knee jerk liberal. And I think they wanted to bring somebody in who's somewhat controversial. And I happen to fit that bill. But really, for me, all of it is just I try to be an academic linguist and this other stuff happens to me. And now I juggle the two things and it's beginning to alarm me that I now do more media 
than academia. And I'm working against that because I genuinely love the pointy headed obscure linguistics work that I do. And, you know, I'm overstretched at this point, but that's better than being bored. But you remember when all I was was this, you know, linguistics professor who's kind of a smooth talker. And that is about all I ever thought I was going to be until roughly last week. Well, you're juggling very well, and you're a father now as well, and uh, that I know has given you a great deal of pride and happiness and feel your joy. Uh, you described the, the New York Times wanting to move away from this liberal identity, but you've described yourself through the years as a cranky old kind of 60s liberal, and the irony in that is that now people have you in this silo as being, uh, I suppose, I don't know, somewhere maybe with Tom Sowell or Shelby Steele, black conservatives and that sort of thing. Maybe even, I don't know, Clarence Thomas. I don't know. How do they... Uh, how do they evaluate you? Well, you know, it's at the point where anybody who thinks that I am a conservative Republican either hasn't really read me and they're just going through things about my demeanor and stuff they read online, or they're remembering a lot of the things I used to talk about circa 2002 or three. I think a lot of people are thinking about now, you know, interesting talks that I can see myself giving on C-SPAN every now and then. And I don't look much, but there was a time when I'd be in a suit on C-SPAN talking for definitely conservative think tanks and saying things that I thought were perfectly liberal. I think a lot of people, if, if you hated me then, you've never checked me out since and you think that I am a George W. Bush Republican. But the truth is, I've got a body of work out there now and I haven't counted, but it's a lot of books. It's countless articles. It's countless media appearances. And anybody who thinks that I'm Clarence Thomas, it's just, you know, isn't isn't watching. What's gone on is that since really the late 60s, there's been a problem with what is considered to be mainstream ideology on race. On race, there's this sense that radicalism is the default. If you're just a liberal, if you're just like me, where your views are those that, you know, somebody with cat eyed glasses drinking martinis, a black civil rights leader in 1962 would have had. That's now seen as Republican and conservative. But no, it isn't. I have views that would have been considered perfectly ordinary among people with their fists up in the air 50 years ago. It's this idea that true blackness is being a radical that makes it seem to many people like I'm a quote unquote shill for the right wing, et cetera. But, you know, Michael, actually, you know, you and I probably had a conversation kind of like this going on 20 years ago. I feel like now fewer people are under that impression. You know, it used to be that probably most people thought of me as this conservative person. I think now most people get that I'm just quote unquote unpredictable or centrist or cranky or heterodox. I kind of like where I am now. It's always clear now that anybody who thinks I'm a right winger just it doesn't know me. Well, I know you, and I think of you as a clear thinker. And I also uh, think of you as someone who can say things that, frankly, white people can't say. Yeah, there's a little of that. And the important thing is that often it's not right that white people can't say it. And so I am often very quite aware that I am saying things that certain white people are sitting there saying, he's right, but I can't say it. And it's not that they're thinking black people are inferior. It's not that they're saying we need to wind back social programs or anything like that, because those aren't my views. But there are definitely things that need to be said, such as affirmative action should be based on class now, not race. 
I would venture most sensible people understand that now. It's much easier for me to say that, though, than a white person. So I'm going to say it, and I'm going to keep saying it. I've taken hell for saying it. <laughs> you know, and it's not because I'm giving vent to racism. It's because I'm saying something that I think is a legitimate view that deserves to be brought to the table. So, yes, that is part of my role. I'm trying to get all of America more comfortable speaking sense about race. And that has to start with a black person. And I, I think I'm black. Well, even though you have the uh, Roman numeral five after your name, some people think probably otherwise, but he's John McWhorter V. Uh, I want to talk about woke, uh, the idea of woke. In fact, uh, Henry Louis Gates, I noted, uh, and you probably are aware, is now putting out this black dictionary, all the vernacular words, nitty gritty and hep and cool. There's just so many words in that lexicon. Uh, woke is in that lexicon. Woke comes originally from the black vernacular, doesn't it? It does. You can read about it back in the 60s and you can hear um, Lead Belly using it back in the 30s. And what it meant was that you were hip to the realities of what we would today call something like systemic racism or structural oppression. It used to be a, a warm, useful, streety kind of word. And then about 10 minutes ago, it became a pejorative. And so now when people say woke, usually they mean a certain kind of person from the hard left who has a punitive attitude about imposing their views. That's not what it meant before. It's been a word that's evolved really quickly in our times. Well, you do the job in your book of likening the whole woke notion and where it has gone. And it has become a pejorative, I think. We did an interview recently with um, Amber Mack, who talked about all progressives being labeled as woke. It's gone over to that side, but it's also gone to the other side where uh, woke is being analogized to uh, the Stasi or the Mao's Red Book and that sort of thing. I, I mean, one, one hopes that it will leaven out whatever it is on either side uh, and come to some kind of practical middle some gray, like we like to think of ourselves as a gray matter. But I'm also interested in finding out from you about how this word carries with it. Uh, so much baggage now. Uh, I mean, uh, it's as if um, calling someone woke can be good on the one hand, ameliorative, but it can also be, as you indicated, terribly pejorative. Uh, it's It's got a double dual meaning, really. Yeah. And, you know, to tell you the truth, there's a kind of woke person who I think has deserved how the word has transmogrified, because it's one thing to be on the hard left and to express your views and even to express them in an impatient way. I mean, I taught at Berkeley. I knew that kind of person. I have stubbed my toe on that kind of person in my academic work. You need those people around, even if they, like everybody else, are sometimes obnoxious. But where it becomes a problem is the idea that if you're not woke enough, you lose your job. If you're not woke enough, you get shamed constantly on social media and not just called names, but, you know, being given implications that you really shouldn't exist on the earth. All of that, not to mention the idea that whole industries and whole modes of thought and whole academic departments need to be turned towards examining things the way a woke person would be interested in. All of that, frankly, has become obnoxious. I understand where those people are coming from, but when they start pushing people out of windows and calling it social justice, I think it's obnoxious. And that's why I wrote Woke Racism. And frankly, it's their fault that woke is now pejorative and they deserve to be called to account. We need a hard left, but no, we do not need people who act like Stasi members. And of course, we're not talking about physical violence, but that doesn't make it okay.
Yeah, and I want to talk with you about cancel culture and all the rest of it that you've just intimated and uh, alluded to. But first, I wanted to find out about this idea of woke as becoming a religion, which is really at the center of your latest book. Uh, in some ways, uh, I think you're right on. I mean, I think about uh, a kind of Calvinistic original sin of being white and being privileged, regardless of whether your parents or your ancestors were serfs or you know, uh, they were white slaves or whatever. Uh, I mean, it doesn't, abolitionists, it doesn't matter. You're still somehow guilty, it seems. But there's also more of an ideological or political side to this, isn't there, than a religious side? I, I just wonder about that distinction, because this comes out of identity politics. Yeah. Um, many people have said, I think it's actually probably been the main critique of the woke racism book that really I'm talking about ideology and there's no reason to call it a religion. And I think one, there's a fine line. And two, I stress the religious point for heuristic reasons, because I want people to understand that we hear a lot these days that we need to learn how to talk to each other. We need to learn how to have better conversations. I think though, that when we're dealing with a certain kind of woke person, the kind I write about in that book, there's no conversation to be had because as far as they're concerned, demonstrating that you're aware that structural racism exists is more important than anything else to the point that it doesn't even matter whether your beliefs help actual people. It doesn't matter if the way you express your beliefs would be considered uncivil here in the real world. None of those things matter. You can't reach them. It's more than an ideology. It's something that founds people's whole sense of purpose and identity. And to the extent that I want people to understand that I'm not just being impatient and saying there's a certain kind of person you can't reach and you just have to step around them instead of trying to have a dialogue. That is the sort of thing that you associate with religion. I say in the book that with this particular kind of person, and I know this partly you know, Michael, I'll say to you in particular, I know this partly because of the kind of person I met during the Ebonics controversy way back in 1996. That's when young me first encountered a kind of person where I would say, I don't believe in this program because it doesn't help black kids, because it hurts this, because it doesn't make sense. It's not based on you know points that were you know, valid. Maybe you disagree. And having a certain kind of person just look at me with daggers coming out of their eyes, infuriated that I just wasn't making the proper black kind of statement. The idea was, if you're not decrying racism, you need to just shut up. There were people who actually refused to write letters for my tenure back then. And I I'm black, you know, a black person at UC Berkeley. There were white people who wouldn't write letters for me. I'm long past this. But back then, I remember thinking you actually couldn't make sense with people like this. See, this is what should uh, maybe um, give vent to what was called black rage back in the Greer and Cobbs days of those two black psychiatrists who wrote a book that was just kind of taken in and absorbed. And supposedly the notion that many people had of how black people are supposed to act, along with, as you pointed out a number of times, the idea that they're all victims and they all should see themselves as victims, which is, from your perspective, baleful. That's a wonderful point. And that book and its ideology and where it emerged had a lot to do with the way many people came to think about what black authenticity is. And my point in woke racism is that you have to liken this to trying to teach somebody that Jesus doesn't love them if they believe that. The chances you're going to talk somebody out of a belief set that deep are so small that it probably isn't worth the effort. Same thing with a particular kind of elect person, as I call them these days. You can't fix it. You have to walk around them. And so I find the religious point makes that observation easier to make 
than making it sound like it's something that people talk about in seminars. And ideology sounds more permeable than a religion, to me at least. This is Gray Matter, uh, Conversations with Michael Krasny, and we are conversing with John McWhorter. We're getting some questions. Uh, we'll converse some more with John, that is, I will, but let me go to some of your questions here. Eric from Washington, D.C. is a biologist, and he says, your language lectures remind me of Darwin and Mendelian genetic processes. So I'd like to ask, with continued intermixing of cultures at ever-increasing speeds, do you predict eventual homogenization languages into a single language? <laughs> no, um, all the languages are not going to mix together. There are some language mixtures that are happening on various continents, depending on what the social circumstances are. But what's going to happen, unfortunately, is that this language that I'm speaking right now is going to be the closest thing the world has to a universal language. And in about 100 years, there are going to probably be about 499 other languages left as ones that are being passed on to kids. But English is the monster language. It's going to be the one that's considered most advantageous. And here we are. It's not going to be Mandarin. I think there's a part of all of us that kind of likes the idea, partly because it would be unexpected and partly because it shows that we value other cultures. We think, well, Mandarin is going to be the universal language because more people speak it. But no, um, Mandarin, Frank, with the tones, it's too hard to learn if you're past the age of roughly 13. And the writing system is a gorgeous thing that I've been slowly teaching myself over the past few years, but it's also a nightmare. It's just, and if the writing system doesn't go away, for that reason alone, Mandarin cannot be a universal language. Well, what about Esperanto? <laughs> Esperanto is wonderful. Yeah, and it, it's Esperanto is great. It's something that you know certain people do, but English serves its purpose, and that's. I wish it didn't, but it does. Let me go back just for the moment to cancel culture because I've been wondering why cancel culture works the way it does or doesn't work the way it should work, perhaps. I mean, there are people who probably should be canceled. Lately, I've heard a lot of talk about Alice Walker, who I used to be friends with, should be canceled because she's been so rankly anti-Semitic uh, and in ways that are very disturbing. Uh, and why isn't Mel Gibson canceled? For example, it seems to work in different ways with different ethnicities. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing what determines whether people are canceled. And I think there's Mel Gibson is an interesting case. It's hard to cancel somebody who has been part of so many extremely iconic movies. But you could argue that there's been a certain cancellation of him in terms of who interviews him and about what. But there is a tacit sense that if a person is especially both black and a woman, then they have to have done something extremely egregious to be canceled. And frankly, that rather naked anti-Semitism is not even considered egregious enough. What cancel culture is based on is ultimately something that's a good thing in its way, which is that in America, we, we, we examine ourselves for racism to an excessive, um, I meant to say obsessive degree, which can sometimes be excessive. And that's a social advance. The idea that you think of it as probably the worst thing you could be, short of a pedophile, to be a racist. That wouldn't have made sense to most white Americans before about 1975. But what it means is that if you've got something called social media where you can be called a racist and the whole world can see it, most people would rather shut up and even lie to themselves and to the rest of the world than be exposed to that. So cancel culture means that certain people are basically holding that always over your head. If you go against what they believe to be the truth, if you go against their sense that we must always be battling power differentials and that, that must center everything, then you get called a terrible, terrible thing 
on social media. But the idea, of course, is that if someone is, for example, Alice Walker, if someone is, for example, Joy Reid, you know, Joy Reid at MSNBC was revealed to have said some pretty pitiless things about gay men in blogs of hers just 10 years before. And frankly, I love Joy Reid, but she did say those things and she was a little bit mendacious when confronted with those. Joy Reid is still with us. And frankly, I think she should be. It makes perfect sense. Her career should not have been destroyed because of some silly stuff that she wrote 10 years before. Everybody, I think, should be treated like Joy Reid, but it's not an accident that nothing happened to her, whereas other people, you know, we're quite familiar with all of them, end up having to at least hibernate for years. I'm going to go to some more questions that are coming in here, but just something that occurs to me along these lines, and uh, I don't know if you knew that uh, part of my experience as a teacher and a scholar was teaching black literature back in the day, which is probably something a white guy couldn't do now. I, I think it would almost be impossible, but um, it was a very rewarding and wonderful teaching uh, experience for me. There was a period, though, when many of my students seemed to take a very similar point of view about racism. They seemed to regard racism as something that could not be true for black people um, because white people have the power. I mean, this is out of, again, the black power movement, and it has a lot of mixed roots and so forth. But that seems to be sort of operative now in some ways, doesn't it? That, In other words, you can't say cancel somebody black because they can't be racist somehow or they yeah, there's something to it, too. You know, believe it or not, I, I, I agree with that. Racism involves power. And so if the person down below doesn't like the people up above, to call that the same thing as the people from above not liking the people from down below, to me, that's always been rather willfully uncomprehending. It's a little crude. If George Jefferson, this is to date myself, but if George <laughs> Jefferson and Fred Sanford were racists, well, yeah, you get it given the world that they lived in. Now, the justification for that kind of racism from below gets thinner today. If you are black and you've grown up at the hands of police forces that are constantly making your life difficult for whatever reason, I can see it. But to be, say, an upper middle class, affluent black kid who goes to Yale or something else and walks around angry at white people for abstract reasons, frankly, I think that's a bit of a pose. But I do understand that you can't be a racist from down below. That doesn't mean that your feelings aren't obnoxious for other reasons and that you can do no wrong. But I do get the idea that racism is something that has to come with power. So, for example, it doesn't make anti-Semitism OK, but I don't know if I would think of it as the same thing as um, a, a white nationalist who hates black people. Well, when I uh, read uh, Ms. D'Angelo's work and interviewed her, I was kind of surprised that she said uh, white liberals are worse than white supremacists uh, from her perspective. This is a white woman who's written a great deal about race. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with because probably her work has been as influential as Abraham Kendi's uh, in many ways, Abraham X. Kendi. But that idea that white liberals uh, are you know, more invidious somehow than people who want to blow up churches or, you know, kill blacks in Buffalo, New York, uh, randomly and so forth, just somehow doesn't equate. Uh, it doesn't equate with any kind of notion of calculus that I have. No. Um, you know, D'Angelo, I'm sure she's well-intended, but I literally, 
The worst book I've ever read was a book called Cartoon Monikers, where it tried to explain how cartoon characters got their names, but it didn't have anything to say. Like it said, Daffy Duck was called Daffy because he was Daffy. There was actually a book that bad. The second worst book I've ever read is White Fragility. And that is because I just don't see logic. What I see in her argumentation is just these circular proclamations that, for example, you, Michael, are more of a problem than Kyle Rittenhouse. And all of that has a great dramatic payoff. It's good theater. But frankly, what it comes down to is this. If we're going to address that kind of view, she is waiting for an ideal socio-psychological landscape for Black advancement that no group of human beings has ever required in the 300,000 year history of our species. It doesn't have to be that perfect. And so let's say that there's some things that the white liberal could learn that might be germane to a more effective black activism. First of all, we should be more interested in the activism rather than sweeping around in people's minds. And second, how good do things really need to get? And she does not prove I mean, there's nothing she proves in that book. But one thing she doesn't prove is that all of these sessions that she wants to put white people through, all of it is a variation on the Black Rage book that you mentioned before. It's directly derived from that. She never explains, if you do all of this stuff, then what happens? Why is it necessary to do all that before there's change? I learned nothing from that book about activism, about politics. You're told in that book that you shouldn't think about that that much because everybody just needs to sit down and be therapized first. And to tell you the truth, another thing, and I'm going to say this about her because of one thing that I've heard her say about me. I'm going to, I'm going to get down in the mud one time. One thing I would ask her if she were up for actually addressing people who don't agree with her, I would say, okay, so what have you accomplished? You know, in all those sessions, what's happened? How is the world better? Give me some proof. And frankly, I don't think she could. And so what I see that book doing is advocating a kind of theater, but that's different from the real work of getting down on the ground and changing people's lives who need help. You got me curious about how Goofy got his name, but I won't go there. I'll go to uh, instead some questions that are coming in here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you're getting questions about communication. Uh, let me go to these. James from San Diego wants to know, how could broadcast and social media help us have more effective communication instead of fragmented communication in our country today? You know, I, I'm not being contrary, but I'm not sure that broadcast media could be wielded to improve our communication because unfortunately broadcast media means that people are speaking off the cuff and that lends itself to emotion i think and i'm not sure this is just because i'm getting older i think that we need to restrain our sense that the written word is old-fashioned because there's a dispassion that's possible in writing that i find more effective in getting things across than the, the messiness of speech. We live in an increasingly oral culture of which broadcast media is part. And in a way, it can be dangerous. It can be dangerous because speech can convince you of things that aren't true. It can be dangerous because speech allows you to get emotional when you shouldn't. I like print for things like that. I'm thinking more and more about how print could be more effective. Yeah, I think about that a lot. But then you think about uh, the fact that people don't have the patience or the attention span with print that they used to have, uh, presumably used to have. I mean, particularly because everything is text now and Twitter and, and the like. Uh, a couple more questions actually along those lines. Uh, another listener uh, in North Carolina wants to know, how do we foster conversation and thought rather than yelling louder about our established views? We're looking to you for some wisdom here, John. Yeah. All right. Here's some here's some wisdom. 
I think that we all need to constantly foster a tendency to imagine being someone else. It's very important not to demonize other people for their views. Almost never is somebody evil. It's very, very rare. Generally, if somebody has a belief that you find repulsive from within their head, they're not repulsive and they don't have malevolent views. It's just that they frame existence differently or more often than not, it's a matter of rankings. You rank something at number one, they rank it at number three. You rank racism at number one as a deal breaker in who you would vote for. If Trump is a racist, you won't vote for him. Another person doesn't like racism either, but as far as they're concerned, there are other things that Trump does or says that they really approve of. Racism for them is not at 37, but it's at about three. That doesn't make them a bigot. It just makes them somebody who prioritizes things differently than you, including things that are important and sensitive like racism. So what I always try to do when I'm thinking about an interlocutor is to imagine what it must be like to be them. So, for example, I just you know threw shade on Robin D'Angelo. But the truth is, I try to imagine where is she coming from? For example, I would never say she's a hustler. That's not what it is. She clearly, truly believes what she's saying. And then I think, well, if the things don't make sense to me, how does that make sense to her? And you learn a little bit about a person's life experience, et cetera. She's not evil. She just thinks differently from me. That we need to certainly understand. Evil is rare. Insanity is rarer. And so we have to understand that there are many ways of being a legitimate person. And one of them is, yes, being a Republican. Republicans are not crazy and they're not evil. They're just different. Well, this is an empathic and commiserative way of looking at things. I uh, commend you for that. Uh, many people would disagree and recoil at even a good word about Republicans or an idea that you should put yourself in the other people's shoes and everything. It goes back to the golden rule or maybe the silver rule of Confucius. Do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you, which takes uh, a joint uh, a movement toward empathy. Wondering though, when you talk about, for example, the need for black children uh, and the need to really make their lives easier, especially those who are in poverty and so forth, what comes to your mind? What kind of constructive and particularly action comes to your mind other than empathizing and feeling the pain and all those kinds of things? Black children? I think of a lot of things, and one of them is being taught to read in the proper way, and this has nothing to do with my old experience with the abonics controversy, but I really do think that phonics-based reading programs have been proven to help poor kids in particular. You breathe in learning how to read from the air if you grow up in a book-lined home, but most people don't. And so since there is disproportionate poverty among Black kids, I think that reading teaching is extremely important in that sense. And I also think that we need to think more about what would encourage two-parent homes. And I'm not going to strike this you know, Republican moralistic line about how there are too many black single moms, 70% of black kids are born to single parents. People don't necessarily have to be married. It may be somebody who you're living with for a long time. Maybe that changes to another person after a while. This is real life. You know, we're, we're way past 1950. But really, it's better overall for a kid to grow up with two people in the home. And an awful lot of black boys end up going wrong, not because there's something wrong with being black, but because there's no dad at home. And some of that is the war on drugs. Some of that is that our tax code has a way of penalizing people actually getting married. Forgive me, John, you, you know, you can be labeled a racist just for saying what you just said. I mean, regardless of what the numbers say. 
No, not at all, especially because this is becoming a race neutral problem. This is no longer just black women in, quote unquote, the ghetto. This is the United States's lower class where it's better if they're two people. And that's just been proven in many ways. And it would be nice if we could get our way back towards that instead of the quiet idea now being that to raise a kid by yourself is the default. It's always going to happen some, but I wish we could move away from it being practically the default in a lot of neighborhoods. Some more uh, questions. Uh, this is from uh, Bill over in Leechburg, Pennsylvania. He says, do you think the weight of speech is different, meaning the importance of each word is different between urban areas where people are packed together and rural areas where what you do is often more important than your opinions? Michael, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand what the difference would be between a rural and an urban area and how people use language. I think that the differences will be based on other parameters. I may be missing something about that question, but I would, that's a tough one. Well, maybe this next one is tough too. Frank wants to know, is there a balance between speaking diplomatically and providing space for discussion and being frank, but sometimes inappropriate by some standards? Yeah, that's interesting. There comes a time when after you've been polite, and made sure that everybody is comfortable. Within reason, you do need to talk turkey. You need to say things that you know are going to get people's blood pressure going up a little bit. You use that kind of thing sparingly, though. If you do that too much, people just shut down. But if you get people to trust you to an extent, then maybe you can say some things that make people a little bit uncomfortable as long as they can understand that you have good intentions at heart. Somebody once told me about this sort of thing, and you know, I... I distrust these things that rhyme or have a nice rhythm because often something rhymes or has a nice rhythm, but doesn't mean anything. But he said about black audiences, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. So it doesn't matter what your statistics are or what degrees you have. They have to know that you care. And that makes sense. And so if people know that you care, and this isn't only about race issues, then they'll be more open to listening to things that are not chummy and, and cozy, at least in my experience. In some instances, too many instances, language doesn't necessarily communicate that sense of care. It has to go somewhere beyond that, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's partly because language is highly approximate. We have to think about the fact that the richness of life that we experience is only sketchily indicated by the words and sentences that we put to it. There's so many ways that you can misread what people say. Practically every sentence that we say is implying rather than nailing everything that we're trying to get at. It's the nature of language. And so, yeah, there we, one must be careful because the way we hear each other differs from person to person and the way we express ourselves differs from person to person. Language is tough, which is why I like how tamed it is on the page as opposed to speech. It's interesting. There's a whole new ecology these days. When we did our earliest interviews, I thought of myself as a writer. And yet the New Republic would let me write 8,000 word pieces. And I thought, this is what I do. And an interview to me was just something else because it's speech and speech is messy and people are always mishearing you, et cetera. These days, as you and I both know, there's this podcast ecology where it's all about speaking with one another online. And that's great in many ways, but it means that we're not writing as much. And and the old man part of me is beginning to get a little itchy about that. Yeah, I feel the same way. In fact, uh, coming up, as we both did, valuing the written word and putting a great deal of stock in it, uh, highest bar to reach in terms of gold standard and all that sort of thing, you know, words are cheap. Uh, and yet at the same time, words have in some ways almost eclipsed the written word. Not almost, they have. 
It's a, it's a new ecology. And I decided about three years ago to start embracing it. For a long time, I said, this business of talking all the time, no, I'm a writer. But in about 2020, I realized if I insist on this, I am no longer going to be heard. I have to start doing the talking. But it's different. It's a very different way of being a a media person. But you have the advantage of being a fluent speaker. I mean, uh, that's not meant as a, well, it is a compliment, but at the same time, <laughs> the reality is a lot of people can write very well, but they can't speak. I can think of people I've interviewed who are remarkably gifted writers who, you know, can barely express themselves. And, you know, uh, that's the reality. That Isn't that the weirdest thing when you've got a somebody who's a great writer and it turns out that they're just not great at using their mouths? It's weird. It's also weird when when you read them and they're funny and they don't turn out to be funny when you talk to them, that sort of thing too always uh, gave me pause. I want to talk to you also just getting back to getting to language uh, in, in a deeper way. You've always had a philosophy, it seems to me, and you've been consistent through the years that language changes and one has to adapt and realize the resiliency of language. I think one of your columns that really probably hit a lot of people the wrong way, and that's why I want to talk about it here. I suspect it did. I don't know that as a fact. Was when you said, look, we're in a non-binary world. We have to accept they, and they is uh, a pronoun that can be used even though it's confusing. And it's really very confusing for many people, especially folks uh, from the old uh, school like us. I mean, you know, used to be as an English teacher, I would, if the pronouns didn't agree, I'd circle them in red and say these pronouns are not in agreement. So somebody says, a patient is leaving and there, and you don't identify their gender. Uh, I mean, it may be good in terms of we've been too obsessed about gender, but at the same time, it's confusing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It takes practice, especially if you were over <laughs> roughly 20, I would think. It's, it's hard because your pronouns are very deeply seated. It's not like some word like aquamarine or something like that. It's your fingers, essentially. And all of a sudden, there's this new way of using it where you can say something like, my girlfriend is in the hospital and they decided to get their hair cut there. That new way of using they. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm all for it, partly because there's another strange pronominal usage that we all get used to. And that is Billy and I went to the store. Nobody is a kid saying that. That's not the way natural English works. You learn to make that substitution from your aunts and uncles and from school. And you get to the point that you don't have to think about it. But if any English speaker from, say, 1600 listened to the way we say Billy and he went to Walmart, they would be baffled as to why we're observing a rule that, frankly, somebody made up in the early 1800s and it happened to catch on. And you listen to the kids and they use they quite fluently. So apparently it isn't that hard. But yeah, when I did that piece, frankly, you know, if you do, if you are doing a column twice a week and it's in the New York Times where, quote unquote, everybody's going to read it, it's hard work. And there are times when you don't phone one in, but you write one that you think of as rather easy. And I figured, well, you know, in my world, there is so much they now that I'm sure everybody will embrace this. And, you know, I don't read my official hate mail, but there are various ways that, you know, people, people get to you. Like the times has an address where you send stuff. I think there are like millions and I have never read one of them because I'm too busy writing the next piece, but you know, people write to you in different ways. A lot of people seem to think that in espousing the new, they, 
which although it is difficult for me, I'm very much in favor of that. There are all sorts of other things that I'm inherently espousing too. And so if I like that there's a new referential gender neutral pronoun, then I'm also expressing my support for kids being you know, taught to change their bodies at a very young age, et cetera. And that's a whole other kettle of fish that I have not even dipped a toe into. But for many people, the they thing is the gateway to much more, frankly, important issues about gender identity and what you do to your body and at what age. I was surprised that many people seem to think that I was even touching that aspect of things. But then again, everything is holistic, right? Did you get pushback about things like talking about a pregnant person as opposed to a pregnant woman, that kind of thing? <laughs> I haven't really waded in on that particular issue yet because I want to say something that a whole bunch of other people aren't saying. And so I'm getting to it, but I haven't done it. You're not going to give that away then? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is smart writers' uh, <laughs> privileges and the way writers should be operating, I think, uh, and don't necessarily operate as much. I as try people. to. My, my policy has always been if I'm going to have a bunch of people mad at me, you know, I'm used to having people mad at me about my race views. So that's lots of black people and increasing numbers of white. But stepping beyond that, I am much more careful because with black views, at least I can use my personal experience, although some people think it isn't relevant, but frankly, it is. But when it comes to issues with women, with gender, the whole trans business, et cetera, Latinos, Native Americans, I tread much more lightly because I feel like I don't really have the authority. That doesn't mean I don't tread, but I just tread much more lightly. Do you uh, tread lightly on Latinx to refer to... Uh... No, because it's such an easy case. I mean, just the vast majority of Latinos don't use it. And I live in a what's basically a Latino neighborhood in Queens. It's it's so easy. I know that most Latinos would agree with me. But if it's something more delicate, I do tread lightly about Latinos. I got back to something. And you, you mentioned the New York Times a few times. That's your identity now. Um, there's been so much controversy stirred up about the 1619 Project, which started at the New York Times. And Frankly, uh, I, don't, I think you see it in some ways as being um, not necessarily, again, good for black people. Well, you know, Michael, the truth is that there is a policy that Times employees are not supposed to speak ill of other Times employees. And so I'm going to have to not say too much here but you don't I have to speak say, ill. You could just talk about. But I will know, say this. Yeah. The 1619 Project, if you read the book is really, it's a very good book. It's got lots of really interesting information in it. The claim that the whole country really begins with the slaves coming here or black people in bondage and that the Revolutionary War was fought because of slavery. I think we all know, you know what the facts are on that and you can imagine what I think. But the 1619 Project in general, I don't think it's bad for black people. I just think that the basic premise of it, yeah, I can say this. I think that black pride can come from any number of things other than proposing that blackness is the very heart of our entire history and that racism is the very essence of what America is. That's not something that only comes from the 1619 Project. There's a long tradition of that view. And I've never... I've never agreed with it. The idea that America has been all about racism. If you just started the tape again, you could say America has been all about sexism. It's been all about classism. It's been all about 
water rights. It's been all about all sorts of things. And I don't see racism as primal in that, even despite, say, the Civil War that Black people helped build the Capitol, et cetera. It was one of many things. And I sense that some people seek a sense of importance in being Black by claiming that racism has been the whole story. I don't see that as wrong. I don't see that as bad for Black people, but it strikes me as an overly as an oversimplified view of the country. And so, for example, this is not, I'm not just jumping on the 1619 Project. Jill Lepore is one of my favorite writers. I read every book that she writes. I read every article in The New Yorker that she writes. But her, these truths, her history of the United States, focusing almost entirely on that kind of injustice and implying that that's the whole story. I missed the history of the United States. I wanted to know about things that she left out because she was so interested in nailing that kind of injustice as the spine of things. That, to me, was her most disappointing book because of that. And so that kind of view can come from all kinds of people. That's my roundabout answer to where what you're getting at. Well, I'm also an admirer of Jill Lepore's, uh, but I'm wondering, um, when we talk about systemic racism or when you talk about this predominant view of America as a racist country, which it has been, no doubt, does it leave out, you know, the civil rights struggle and all that it accomplished uh, in terms of statutes and laws? Does it leave out or omit or simply in some ways uh, not take into account the election of Barack Obama or the fact that we have so many mayors and police chiefs now who are blacks? Uh, I mean, it, it seems to, in other words, sort of glide over that or um, not take account. Well, I would definitely say that there's a kind of a willful pessimism. And I think where it comes from is a tendency for especially educated black people to feel that what makes us interesting is our pain and our being owed. It means that there's always a certain shoe that has yet to drop. And if you've been maltreated for centuries, it's no surprise that you end up seeking what we now call hacks as a sense of basic identity, basic security, having a sense of significance. None of this is willful. But there's a problem with it, and it does mean that we like to pretend that things don't get really, really better. And so, for example, little, little things like, you know, the Russians look at our country and they intuit that if they basically steal a gay, black, female basketball player, that there'll be an outspring of sympathy in the United States for this person. Would anybody have had that feeling about the United States in, say, 1950 or even in 1970? It shows what kind of country we've become, that that's true, that there is this national sense of sympathy with Brittany Griner and that other pe people in other countries can see that that's what the zeitgeist here is. Things change and they change in profound ways. And we're taught to suppose that anyone saying that is some kind of Pollyanna who doesn't understand the importance of what happened to George Floyd. I do think that there is a doom and gloom that we're, we tend to think of as enlightenment, but it does end up almost discounting what other people did in the past to make what's going on today possible. I always felt when I was, you know, call me you know, 10, 15, 20, growing up in the 70s, I always thought I am so thankful to the people in those newsreels in Eyes on the Prize, the people on the flashcards that my mother would give me, my color, color Me Brown coloring book, 
Thank God those people made it so that I can live my sunny day little life here in the 70s, dealing with so much less racism than people were just 15 or 20 years ago. I thought that was a normal view. And then as I got a little older in my 20s, I realized that most black people didn't feel that way at all and basically felt as if they were still living in 1960, except with window dressing different. I have been working to understand and grapple with that kind of view now for 25 years because I just don't get it. Well, let's get another question uh, about communication. This comes from uh, Tlaloc Lopez Waterman who wants to know, what's the best format uh, to try to deal with reaching debate and what is the goal of a debate? I'm not sure the import of that question, but it's an important one, I think, if I understand it correctly. The goal of debate is not to change people's minds, at least not there, but to get people to understand that there are many different ways of looking at an issue that are morally legitimate. That's what comes from a good debate, showing that these two people who are at loggerheads on some issue, nevertheless, both are making some points. Neither one of them are evil. That can be very educational. And that's why a debate between people who you know truly despise each other is often less enlightening. But yeah, you're not going to change minds in an instant. But it's always educational to see that any issue worth its salt is complex. There's no such thing as, well, all I know is boom. Nothing interesting reduces to that. There's always a hazy middle ground. And that's what, that's what education is for, I think. Yes, indeed. And one of the most complex issues, perhaps, is one that you alluded to earlier, uh, ongoing. That is the, the distinction, the difference we have between race and class and the ongoing attempt to understand what's been described as intersectionality and uh, things have become very confused. I mean, to look for nuance, to look for subtlety, to look for multidimensionality, all these kinds of things has become uh, increasingly more difficult, more challenging, I would say. You agree? Yeah, it, it's hard. And what I see coming, and I'm not sure how we're going to deal with this, is that as the country becomes ever more diverse, as the country becomes ever more mixed as people of different shades are you know, mating and having kids in some neighborhoods like the one I grew up in, being quote unquote mixed is practically the default. As that happens, the idea that there is a particular problem for people who are descended from African slaves is going to start to fray. The idea that it's all about black people's problems with white people, it already is. And I think we're going to get to a point where, for example, class is going to be seen to matter. This idea that the people in um, hillbilly elegy are somehow less deserving of sympathy and interest than a middle-class Black person who deals with microaggressions. I think we have a generation coming that just are going to stop pretending that that makes any sense. And I'd be interested to see what happens when we start having to realize that really the issue in the United States is about class. That cuts across race. That doesn't mean racism doesn't exist, but this is the hard part. The question is going to start to become how important is racism? See, this is the thing that you say that makes people shudder because you hope that you sounded like you were making sense before. But the question is going to be, yes, racism exists, but is it as decisive? Is it as key as we're being told, or is classism becoming what really is more determinative of where people are in life? Well, if you're right about that, will this whole uh, advocacy and argument about reparations kind of go away then or fade? Well, you know, with reparations, my argument has always been that it already happened. The Great Society 
affirmative action, all those things were reparations. They just weren't called it. So the question is, do we need reparations again? And, you know, if reparations are actually passed, if that bill actually makes it through Congress, I'm not going to stand and keep on saying no reparations, no reparations. We can stand on our own two feet. There's no point to that. If really it's going to happen, I'm not going to say, no, black people shouldn't get some money. No, I'll, I, can, I can bend. But what I do know is this. If that happens, it won't help. It won't change the dialogue. The reason people are calling for those reparations at heart is because of that sense that I referred to, that there is something inherent to blackness about being owed and about being a victim. It's called the, the victimization mindset, and it's, it's human. But I can guarantee you, and I don't have a crystal ball, but on this, I almost feel like I do. Once there were reparations, one, it would never be considered to be enough. And frankly, I don't think any amount that actually could happen ever would be. And instantly, the word on the ground will be reparations are just the beginning. You'll have T-shirts and, you know, memes and gifs saying, you know, they better not think they can treat us like animals for 400 years and just pay us off. Woo! It won't help. And so white people who think that will just turn everything around are wrong. And black people who think it would are wrong. Once reparations happen, the idea would be everything is just starting. It doesn't help. Better not think it's over. And that leads me to wonder why do it? But I suppose that's just me. And where do you see white people seeing themselves in terms of the kind of quick trigger condemnation that can come internally or come from others and being a racist? You know, you don't get in a taxi cab, uh, for example, uh, or get in an elevator, those kinds of things that used to be labeled racist because someone black is in there, that sort of thing. Or you're fearful, the kinds of things that have been labeled racist in the past and continue to be labeled racist. I can see that to be a white person these days is to walk around in terror of being labeled a racist in the same way as I walk around in terror of being labeled a sexist. There are even things that I do and say to make sure people know that I'm not a sexist. I can imagine how it feels to be white these days walking around quaking in terror, especially if you're a relatively public person and you do Twitter, but even if you don't. And, you know, frankly, it must be hard. Being the victim of racism is hard too, but I can see that white people, especially these days, are especially uncomfortable about this kind of thing. And I think part of my job is to say, I understand that, but please don't let that make you espouse policies that are harmful to black people in the name of being something called an anti-racist that too often is really just being a performer. Is there anything that comes to your mind, and your mind is very agile on these kinds of things, that would be, say, in terms of policy, that would really turn things around more for racial equity, racial justice, uh, the kinds of things that all of us hope for and aspire to? Well, other than teaching with phonics, there are two things. One, no war on drugs. It was initiated partly out of racism, and it destroys black lives today. If there were no war on drugs, there would be that many fewer interactions between cops and black men in particular. And if one generation of black boys didn't grow up thinking of the cops as the enemy, we would turn a corner on race in a way that would be utterly unprecedented. Most of why people feel that racism is what America is all about the fulcrum of it is the cops. If you sit down and talk with people, I learned that in the Bay Area 25 years ago, talking to people before I wrote my book, Losing the Race. So there's that. And then also we've got to get past this idea that 
what real people do is go to four years of college. We need to be more like Germany. We need to celebrate and we need to fund vocational education so that, for example, with no war on drugs, such that there's no black market for drugs and you can't make even half a living selling them, what will poor black men do? I want poor black men to go to a couple of years of community college, probably not have to pay for it, and learn, for example, how to fix heaters and air conditioners and make $100,000 a year. That makes more sense than what many men like that end up choosing through no fault of their own under our current regime. No war on drugs, vocational training being considered a default rather than a strange choice that you make because you decided not to go learn about Shakespeare, and then phonics. Those three things, I think, would turn Black America upside down. So you may be more with Booker T. Washington than W.E.B. Du Bois? (laughs) You know, frankly, that does align me somewhat with him. And you know what? With Booker T., he had his points. If you actually look at the debate between them, in some ways, I identify with Du Bois just as the kind of person he was. But in some ways, he was he had a view of blackness that didn't always include the realities of what post-slavery black America was like. Both of those men had the 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 benefit of black what all of a sudden I can't talk. Both of those men had the best of intentions for black America. Neither one of them were sellouts. Washington was not a sellout. So yeah, I think that the idea is to make a good middle-class living. Now, Booker T. Washington wanted black people to show white people what they could do. I think we've now seen that that wasn't going to help. But the idea is for poor black people to make middle-class salaries and as quickly as possible after hopefully graduating from high school. So yeah, that's a little bit of, you know, cast down your buckets, but it's also about making a good living. On that note, John, always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, hope we talk again soon. Always enjoy it. Thank you so much. We will. Thank you, Michael. John McWhorter. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.